Hello and welcome back to another episode of the EMS On Air podcast. The mission of this podcast is to keep healthcare providers safe, informed, and prepared. This episode was recorded on April 27, 2022. I'm Jeff Lassers and I'll be your host. I'm a full-time firefighter, paramedic, and EMS instructor, as well as the system manager of a multi-agency EMS system in Southeast Michigan. I've been in the EMS field for over 20 years now. And during that time, I've watched our profession grow, evolve, and adapt to keep up with the constant flow of evidence-based information and recommendations that offer pre-hospital patients the best chance for a good outcome. Ideally, EMS evolves with science by making data-driven decisions that are relevant to our everyday practice and actionable in the field. This sounds super simple, but it's hard for any EMS provider or system to keep up with all of the latest data, information, and recommendations for every EMS skill or new piece of information. The volume of information given to EMS to assimilate can be overwhelming and may not make it into the minds and actions of every field provider. Some of the most effective treatments for critical patients are undervalued and, as a result, underutilized. In today's episode, I sit down with two experts that explain why EMS must adopt a more thoughtful approach to fluid resuscitation for critically ill or injured patients, specifically patients in shock. It turns out that EMS needs to take a more proactive approach to recognizing the need for and administering fluids for certain patients. My new friends Dr. Mark Peel and Dr. Peter Antevi are here to put a spotlight on the value of fluid resuscitation in the pre-hospital setting walk us through the data, and discuss how EMS can provide the right amount of fluid in the right amount of time and make a big impact for our patients. Dr. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician as well as an EMS medical director for several fire-based EMS agencies in South Florida. Dr. Antevi is also a well-known and well-respected doc in the EMS community, and we're very lucky to have him on the EMS On Air podcast to discuss a topic that he's very passionate about. We are also joined by Dr. Mark Peel, a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed Health and Hospitals. He is also the Assistant Medical Director for WakeMed Mobile Critical Care and an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. On top of all that, Dr. Peel is the Chief Medical Officer and Co-Founder of 410 Medical Inc., as well as the inventor of LifeFlow. Basically, LifeFlow is a device used to deliver rapid fluid boluses or blood transfusion for patients with signs of shock. It's an awesome device that is used by EMS and in the hospital that has a lot of potential. Visit 410medical.com for more information about LifeFlow. In today's episode, Dr. Peel and Dr. Antevi help us appreciate the value of pre-hospital resuscitation for shock in critically ill and injured patients. Then they will help us value the place of fluid resuscitation by EMS. Finally, we'll list and describe methods and tools used by EMS to administer fluid resuscitation. This turned out to be a great episode that gave me a lot to consider in my everyday practice, and I hope that you experience the same value. Check out the episode description for links to studies and information cited in this episode. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, and episode ideas to the EMS On Air podcast team by email at jeff at emsonair.com. That's G-E-O-F-F at emsonair.com. Check out our website, emsonair.com, for the latest information, podcast episodes, and other details. Follow us on Instagram at emsonair, and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please, whatever podcast platform you use, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the episode. All right. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Good afternoon. 
Hi, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Dr. Mark Peel, why don't we start with you? Can you tell us who you are, what you do, where you do it, and why you do it? I'm a physician in North Carolina at a hospital called Wake Med. And just to be clear, that's not Wake Forest. Wake Med is a big community level one trauma center in Raleigh. Wake Forest, they're friends of ours. They're a university in Winston-Salem, but people get those confused. And I'm a pediatric ICU physician and help lead a critical care transport team from our hospital as well. And just have a love for helping critically ill patients get better and teaching others as I'm able how to do that better and learning myself how to do it better. So I just have a fascination with and love for the teaching and practice of emergency and critical care, particularly when it comes to kids, but have a broader interest in general sepsis and trauma resuscitation in adults as well. I've been doing this for about 25 years and I'm also kind of an accidental entrepreneur, which you'll hear about a little bit later, but have created a device out of clinical need we found in our own hospital where we were not able to resuscitate well. And, and then I've had the privilege over the past few years of getting to know Peter Antevi, who's probably a much more well-known name than I am, but are of similar minds on a lot of the ways we approach resuscitation and pre-hospital care and privileged to work with him on a lot of projects like this. For whatever reason, I think it's a God-given gift that I love taking care of critically ill children. And we have the privilege and opportunity to change lives as we learn to do that better and teach others how to do it better. And so I find that in the pre-hospital space, children are a minority of the patients people encounter, so they can create a bit more anxiety. And one thing Peter and I have gotten to do together is just kind of share some of the lessons we've learned over the years of practice and help translate those out into pre-hospital care and hopefully further improve the care we're all able to provide to critically ill kids as a team. So that's part of the why. Dr. Peter Antevi, same question. Who are you? What do you do? Where do you do it? And why do you do it? Hey, Jeff. I think Mark and I are brothers from another mother because we're very similar in many ways. I'm a PDM, emergency medicine physician, who turned EMS medical director, thankfully, back in 2010. So I've been blessed by the ability to know the pediatric arena in the emergency medicine arena, and now EMS. And so currently I serve as an EMS medical director across several different counties here in South Florida, and I'm privileged to work with over 2,000 paramedics. We serve several million people. And why do I do what I do? I am adamant about the fact that those of us in medicine are here to serve the people and we're here to help the population. And it turns out that what we do in EMS, what Mark does in the ICU and in the pre-hospital arena, is we could bring people back to life if we do it the right way. So like Mark said, education is a passion. I think if we teach it right, we'll do it better. And we're just privileged to be in this situation. Thank you very much. The problem lying in wait with a pediatric emergency is just not being prepared for the pediatric emergency, right? And so uh, right. a lot of that comes from the fact of not having an appreciation for something you don't see a lot of the times. But even though you two are very, very adept to the pediatric patient, we're not just here to talk about peds today, although we'll bring them up. We're here to talk about fluid resuscitation, and that's going to be the specific focus of our day-to-day and really a thoughtful approach to fluid resuscitation for patients in need. So to kick us off, can you guys help me appreciate the value of pre-hospital resuscitation for shock in critically ill and injured patients? So first, let's define shock, and it's a commonly encountered condition. It's a final common pathway, and it's simply inadequate delivery of blood, oxygen, nutrients to our most important organs, brain, heart, kidneys, lungs. And it commonly occurs from hypovolemia, so either dehydration or hemorrhage, or 
they call distributive shock, where we may have enough volume to pump around, but there's a much bigger space suddenly within which to pump that volume. And so the oxygen and blood are not delivered as effectively, and that occurs in septic shock and anaphylaxis and spinal shock. And then cardiogenic shock is failure of the pump. So a PE, or although that may be termed obstructive in some people's minds, I like to call it cardiogenic because it's the heart inability to pump blood forward by obstruction or by failure of the heart muscle. So in any of those conditions, not getting enough blood and oxygen to the brain and the rest of the organs and disability or death can result. And so we need to react to shock quickly and treat it as an emergency like we would an MI or a stroke. So all forms of shock are medical emergencies and need to be treated immediately. The way I think of shock is like I think of a pool pump. And obviously it's as simple as the fact that there's a pump out in the yard and then there's pipes and then all the water in the pool that has to be circulated. And any part along the way that is a problem has to be corrected. And the one thing I would say about that analogy is it's very difficult for a lot of people to understand, A, that shock is even happening, let alone how to fix it. And so I can say, I'll, I'll raise my hand, Mark, and I'm sure that you've probably been in the situation too, that sometimes it's hard to know it's happening right when you're there in front of the patient. It's always easy to look after the fact but I think that part of what I would like love to discuss and for the people who are listening today is that shock doesn't oftentimes hit you in the face. You have to understand, you have to look, you have to evaluate, and you just have to think about it on every single patient. Yep. And I think talking about the recognition of shock first is probably important. And Peter brings up a great point. And we've missed it. And we do miss it, especially in the early stages. So shock does not necessarily mean low blood pressure. And low blood pressure is not always shock, though most of the time it is. But when low blood pressure is combined with other markers of inadequate systemic perfusion, it's shock. And those may include altered mental status, tachycardia, poor cap refill or skin perfusion, poor pulses, diminished urine output, color of the skin, a variety of elevated lactate. All those factors together, when they're altered, should alert us to the presence of shock, even in the absence of hypotension. And then we need to treat it as an emergency. And most of the time, in most cases, some amount of fluid, or in the case of hemorrhagic shock, blood, can be administered to reverse or partially reverse shock in the moments you have in the pre-hospital arena to begin treating shock effectively. So that's hopefully what we'll get into here, Jeff, a little bit later. So what I'm hearing is the highest priority is not only understanding what shock is before it happens, recognizing those signs that may be leading up to it, because when shock happens, isn't when I should be treating shock. I should be preparing for treating shock based on the circling the drain look on my patient's face, the gut feeling going, absolutely eh, pretty sure this guy's going to die soon. And all of those yeah. add up to bad and we need to be prepared. And then when we start to act, we take these resuscitative measures. Now in cardiac arrest, easy. Thump, 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 start a line, push some drugs. It's really not that hard. When I got a patient who's in shock or coming into ROSC with signs of shock, now I got to think a lot more. So can you guys help me compare and contrast resuscitative measures to really help segregate the two types of things here? Because treating cardiac arrest and treating shock are very different in a lot of ways. If you want to compare and contrast resuscitation for shock uh, versus cardiac arrest patients, I think, Jeff, you hit it right on the head. Initially, for cardiac arrest, there is a very regimented way that we go about doing things. And it's programmatic, it's choreographed, it's very nice. And fluids are always a part of that. And in some cases, blood, depending on the reason for the cardiac arrest. When it comes to shock of all the different sorts that Mark mentioned, 
then it's all about A, determining that this patient's in shock or in compensated shock, because decompensated shock is not the time to diagnose. And then it's understanding very quickly what to do for that patient so that the organs that the blood is trying to get to can actually survive and actually do well and that they don't start to deteriorate. And of course, those main organs, as we think of them, are the heart and the brain and then the other organs that Mark mentioned. So when it comes to shock, resuscitation really in the earliest sense means restoring effective circulation to those organs. And what that means almost... 10 out of 10 times is that you have to start two large bore IVs and you have to give the appropriate amount of resuscitative fluid. Whatever you have in your agency is probably what you should use first. And that is really, I think, the most basic thing. I will tell you, when you look at the data in EMS, as simple as what I just laid out sounds, it turns out that about 3% of kids in shock actually get the simple treatment that I just mentioned. And I know Mark has a lot to say about that, but think of why 97 out of 100 kids who are in shock in EMS don't get the number one, two, and three thing that they needed, which is fluids, fluids, and fluids. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah, I will say as an educator for the last uh, number of years that fluids have never been at the forefront of the information I remember given to disseminate. We talk about a lot of things, not just ALS procedures, not just fluids, not just resuscitation. There's a lot of stuff, but it's not like I can look back and go, yeah, of course we do a lot of fluids. So it's not a socialized concept, even though it's an evidence-based approach. It's not like it's something where like you got to get on the chest hard and fast. That's, you know, as champions so hard, but fluid, not so much. I agree with you totally. And part of the reason for that is some of the misinformation that's out in sepsis and other conditions where fluid can cause harm in my hands in an ICU if overdone. And it's often overdone in the hospital and ICU. But in the early moments of care, when minutes matter, when the heart, brain, kidneys are not getting adequate perfusion and tissue is actually dying, that's when we need to treat shock as a medical emergency and resuscitate or restore blood flow quickly. And that's often a through the right amount of fluid. And we can talk about how we determine that right amount, but it can be an effective intervention in the hands of paramedics and it can make a big, huge difference in those moments of care before they get to the hospital. Absolutely. And maybe you can express the impact of EMS for patients in shock. We talk about the impact of first responders for cardiac arrest, but maybe we can lay this out a little bit to give context to our EMS providers and their impact on shock patients. Sure. If we take septic shock, for example, we can talk about trauma and shock separately, but there is a lot of good information out there about septic shock in particular and how patients pre-hospital with septic shock, particularly those with hypotension, so the severest form, do when they are resuscitated or not pre-hospital. As Peter mentioned, if you look at some of the pediatric literature, very few children get any fluid, which is our first-line treatment for septic shock in children, in the pre-hospital space. In adults, if you look across a good number of studies, the average volume received is somewhere between three and 400 mils in a ride in an ambulance from scene to the ED. And we know that that's probably not adequate to reverse septic shock in an adult, and that in several studies, patients who receive more fluid targeted at improving their blood pressure have better outcomes, specifically lower mortality when they are resuscitated pre-hospital. Those are consistent data across a good number of studies. And so that's an intervention that can make a huge impact when first responders are attentive to reversing septic shock with an adequate dose of fluid given effectively. So 
The second case we might address is similar but traumatic brain injury. So we know from the big, huge, epic TBI study hosted out of University of Arizona that patients with trauma and severe TBI have a much higher mortality when they're allowed to remain hypotensive pre-hospital. If they are resuscitated, and in the study they used fluids, even though some of the patients were bleeding, patients had dramatically lower mortality when proper, adequate fluid resuscitation occurred to reverse their shock, their hypotension, and better perfuse the brain. So in just those two examples alone, we can draw great analogies to MI and stroke in terms of the urgency of providing care. And then the last thing I wanted to add to Peter's comment on cardiac arrest is post-ROSC, many patients are hypotensive. And again there, post-ROSC shock worsens neurologic outcome. That's an injured brain because it's been through a period of low or no flow and it needs adequate perfusion. So resuscitation is important also in cardiac arrest, which is kind of like a septic shock state in the moments after ROSC. It really does place the onus on EMS to make their brains available for updates. Because if we're already making a big impact, we're already well positioned to make more improvements on the people we care for. So as we talk about the fact that we show up to these emergencies and we have a positive impact, let's zero in a little bit on fluid resuscitation as we keep alluding to. And the what really boils down to EMS must adopt a thoughtful approach to fluid resuscitation. Give us some historical data, that evidence-based approach to landing EMS to understanding and really adopting this information and putting it into their practice. The evidence is very clear. When you look at death and mortality from pediatric sepsis, the numbers go up to above 10%, and that's, that's a high number. When you look at children who have chronic conditions, if they get septic, they have an above 75% mortality. So when you think of who we run on an EMS, those chronically ill patients who we run a lot on, and they have fever, they're tachycardic, they may be hypotensive, and we have, um, let's say, 10 to 12 minutes on scene, we have 15 more minutes until we get to the emergency department. They come into the ED, and now they're waiting until things start to happen and so forth. Now it's another 20, 25 minutes. And now suddenly you're realizing that you're past the hour mark and even further along. What happens, unfortunately, in EMS is that we drop off an alive patient. But what people don't recognize is that if they don't do the thing correctly on the scene, then that patient has significantly bad outcomes down the line that may end up in Mark's ICU for days until, unfortunately, they die or they have some other untoward event that debilitates them for the rest of their life. It's almost similar to when people have extravasation of an IV in EMS. We place an 18 gauge, we shoot some D50 through there, and no one thinks any different of it, but that wound doesn't occur. That skin breakdown doesn't occur for days. And so it's hard to connect the dots. I think people are having trouble connecting the dots for pediatric sepsis because they see a tachycardic kid and the hospital is quote unquote only 10 or 15 minutes away. And that's why you see such a small number of pediatric patients who are getting fluids. And forget about the pediatric patients, like Mark alluded to, the adults aren't getting fluids either. If anyone should be doing it, it should be us in EMS. There's no excuses anymore. That's just my feeling about it. Number one, we need to think of sepsis and other forms of shock and hemorrhagic shock for that matter, just as we do stroke and MI. And I'll quote to you a couple key bits of literature that I think we've been over in general here, but... Peter rightly points out that in pediatric sepsis, fluid resuscitation is the primary treatment. We need to give 20 per kilo doses of fluid to reverse signs of shock, and those are hypotension, tachycardia, poor skin perfusion, altered mental status, 
and yet few patients get any fluid pre-hospital. Part of that's recognition, and that's a recognition of shock. Part of that's difficult IV access. Part of that's hesitation to use an IO in a partially awake patient. Those are all barriers. But part of it's just not understanding that shock reversal involves adequate fluid resuscitation, starting with 20 per kilo doses in most kids. And children who are brought in by EMS with septic shock have a higher risk of dying than those who come in with their family. They're just sicker kids, and they need pre-hospital intervention. Adult literature is actually quite similar. More patients get some treatment, but if they are receiving more effective treatment pre-hospital, they have lower mortality. And the first of those studies that I love quoting is out of King County, Washington from about 10 years ago, where they showed that patients with septic shock and hypotension had a much higher likelihood of dying in the hospital if they got no IV and no fluid pre-hospital. If they got even an IV, someone recognized this is bad, we're going to get an IV and we may not have time to get fluid, they had lower mortality. Not quite as low, but somewhat lower. Why is that? Well, they got their resuscitation started presumably the minute they rolled through the door in the ED, as opposed to someone there having to start an IV, then figure out how to give a fluid bolus, then hope that works to correct their hypotension. If they got an IV and a fluid bolus in the ambulance, they had a lower risk of mortality. Another study showed that patients who got over 20 per kilo of fluid with septic shock pre-hospital had a significantly lower risk of mortality in the hospital. And then lastly, EPIC TBI, as I mentioned, the data are quite striking. Hypotension, systolic under 90, in patients with TBI had almost four times mortality if they were allowed to be hypotensive pre-hospital than those whose hypotension was reversed in the ambulance. And that was using a fluid bolus, simple, normal saline. We hear sometimes, or actually often now, that we should never give a drop of fluid to a patient with hemorrhagic shock, meaning if we give too much fluid, we can dilute coagulation factors, worsen acidosis, worsen hypothermia. That's usually done when we give way too much fluid in the trauma bay, liters and liters and liters. Patient who has shock pre-hospital and a meaningful injury like traumatic brain injury needs to have that treated within the 10 to 30 minute ride they have to the hospital. And if that is effectively treated with a liter or so of fluid, they can have a much lower mortality as a result. So I think there's plenty of data out there that suggest we are not very good at treating shock and that we can do it and make a big difference in patient outcomes. I couldn't agree more. And I don't think it's because we're bad at IVs, because I think paramedics, one of the best skills we are, are IV peoples. I've worked in hospitals too. And <laughs> paramedics are pretty darn good at right. IVs. So it's not like we can't get the line. I don't think that's it. It's more of an understanding of when and why we should get the line. And then to kind of go back to your dextrose example, the magic drug of dextrose allows me to diagnose a problem and fix it before I leave their house. Whereas fluid resuscitation, right. I just put it in. And then the data says, I should have helped them. So because that carrot isn't there subconsciously, I think that I'm going to see an outcome. I'm not going to glean a response from this that I'm going to see in the next five to 10 minutes of the care I have for this patient. We tend to not see it on the top of the priority list. And I've seen a big change in EMS since in my career started about 20 years ago. And one of the biggest things I've seen change has been the determination of EMS once they understand why and how something is beneficial, even down the line they become very dedicated to that. So I'm hoping one of the things we could do with this is really depict those patients that we need to have a better approach through fluid resuscitation. And let's listen, describe some of the time-sensitive emergencies that must be addressed through fluid resuscitation. Let's start with the septic nursing home patient. Yeah, I can start with that one. 
well, safe and personal experience that my father, he passed away, unfortunately, two years ago, but he had severe Alzheimer's and he was septic one day and 911 came to the house and he was clearly septic, but didn't get any fluids en route to the hospital. And the nursing home patients is very similar. When you walk into a nursing home, you can almost smell the infection, right? Many of them have decubit eye and they have many other reasons to be septic. And simply just starting a couple of lines in that patient and giving them fluid is so time critical, even if you're right across the street from the hospital. So I think that first and foremost, septic patients of that age who are chronically ill in a nursing home will have the highest morbidity and mortality. Those are the exact patients that we should be giving fluids to prior to leaving the scene. So uh, I shared with you guys before we recorded that I work in a community that has a bit of a higher average age. Per square mile, I'll compete with anywhere in Florida for a nursing home per capita. <laughs> so okay. I can certainly appreciate our elderly community and the various spectrum of nursing homes and assisted livings, and you get it. Where I work, we're talking a 0.8 mile transport from three different nursing homes to a very robust hospital, literally across the street for a number of these nursing homes. Are we still saying that for patients in those situations, they're still benefiting from this type of approach? Or are we really talking about these longer transports in the more rural communities? Tell me as honestly as you can in the 0.8 mile transport, how long it takes you to get into the nursing home, identify your patient get her on the stretcher, into the ambulance, through the lights, across the street, back up to the ED and into triage. What's that total number of minutes? From point of contact to ED, depending on how sick they are, let's call it 20 minutes. Okay. So the answer is obviously yes. Can you make a difference in that amount of time? And is there harm being done to that patient, whether it was Peter's father or any other elderly patient who's vulnerable to the effects of sepsis and hypotension. Do those minutes matter? Absolutely. Should you allow her systolic of 75 to persist during that time? Absolutely not. Peter? I'm going to agree with you 100%. And I, I have a theory here. I have a theory that your 0.8 miles, Jeff, is you know, as small as it'll get. However, I have a feeling that when people are within, I would say, 10 miles or let's say 15 minutes of the location, fluids goes way off the list. It's not even on the list anymore. It's off of the list. I'll give you a perfect example of why that's completely wrong. I was riding recently. We had a guy who was in anaphylaxis. He was sitting on the back of the fire engine because the engine got there first. We get there. He already has two lines in him from the, you know, the captain on the fire engine. I put two lines in the guy. And then when we got there, we had normal saline going in, in both arms because he was so hypotensive. We were giving him push presser. The guy, literally, we didn't even have him on the stretcher yet. So what we could do on the scene, and I witness it all the time in minutes, is faster than any emergency department. I mean, I'll put my money on EMS a thousand out of a thousand times. So Jeff, you're right. Why not stay at that nursing home for a few more minutes to save, like Mark's alluding to, 20, 30, and let's be honest, even an hour until that patient who's in room 65 all at the end of the emergency department until she gets IV fluids, some oxygen if needed, and antibiotics and pressors. What happens is those people end up getting the fluids way too late and it unfortunately impacts them and then they die. So we should be doing this on the scene. I agree, just like we do other things on the scene. 
So it's more of recognizing, responding, not worrying about seeing the outcome in front of me or expecting to see it, but just recognizing that by replacing that fluid, I'm really helping the pump, which is helping the pressure, which is helping the perfusion, which is helping the problem. And this might not be seen for another couple of days, depending on how deep this goes. It could, or it could be seen within an hour when she's worse and now needs to be intubated and now on a ventilator and now on vasopressors because that shock persisted and she was unable to tolerate that lack of perfusion to her brain, heart, lungs, kidneys, and now is a lot sicker because she was not treated effectively. So Jeff, I'll give you an example with a bias, okay? And the bias is because it's an agency that is using our life flow device for fluid resuscitation. A patient was picked up from a nursing home that was two miles, so twice your distance, but two miles from the ED, altered mental status, unresponsive, blood pressure in the 70s, probably urosepsis, as figured out later, and received almost two liters of fluid in that two miles. So you would think, nah, there's not enough time. I can't make a difference here. Let's just get to the hospital and let the doctors figure it out. Well, no. The team gave her her fluid quickly, and by the time they're rolling into the ED, she is awake, talking to them, and the docs don't believe that she was a code sepsis. They're like, no, there's no way she was that sick, as you described 10 minutes ago. Well, yes, she was, because we can observe cause and effect immediately by giving enough volume, and that might be 500 mils, it might be 1,500, it might be 250. You test it out as you go. And her blood pressure is now 110, her heart rate's down 20 points, and she's talking to the team. The subsequent interventions she's going to need will be less, and the subsequent use of heroic resources like ICU and ventilators may be less. Maybe she needs a little peripheral norepinephrine for the next day. Her shock was effectively reversed within a vulnerable time period where she could have rapidly declined. And in this way, I like to say that adults are just big kids. She was in that decompensated shock phase, which Peter and I know from our pediatric ER experience. A child with hypotension is close to dying. That's a decompensated shock. They need immediate treatment, not over half hour, hour. They need it right now. They need to be effectively resuscitated quickly, have their blood pressure brought back to a sustainable level, their shock at least partially reversed, and you'll improve their outcome. I'm glad, Mark, that you brought up life flow because I have been trying for so many years to try and teach people how to give fluids. And when we take out the Lego set of the three-way stopcock and the 60 ml syringe, and we start to put all these pieces together, they look at me and they're like, you're kidding me, right? And I've traveled to all 50 states. And when I ask people, hey, let's go ahead and set up to give a fluid bolus, they look at me like I have three heads. Now, yesterday, we introduced LifeFlow at Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, thankfully, because we rolled out whole blood. And what do you think the first thing my medic said to me when we were showing them this device for whole blood? They said, hey, doc, why aren't we using this for sepsis? I said, that's coming. I like hearing, I like hearing that. <laughs> right. But the thing is, is that they're not going to raise their hand and say, hey, chief, I don't know how to give fluids quickly and effectively. They're just not going to do that. So there hasn't ever been a device or a technique where people can do this quickly. And I think finally there is. And so I think there's going to be a tie change where this education is going to help. There's better devices out there to make it happen. And then we have to measure our outcomes and prove that what we're doing in the field is saving lives much better than just bringing the patients to the hospital. I think that's the big point. Yeah, well said. 
Most everybody is listening to podcasts these days, but if you ever earned EMS continuing education credits while listening to an EMS podcast, what if I told you that you could earn free CAPSI credits towards your NREMT or state EMS license just for completing EMS podcasts and a quick post-test? GuardianCME.com is designed for the global EMS community and is 100% free. Guardian Education Group launched GuardianCME.com in December 2021 with the mission of improving the quality of EMS care globally while drastically reducing or eliminating the cost associated with EMS continuing education. Guardian CME strongly believes that a financial obstacle should not stand between an EMS provider and evidence-based interesting and relevant information that applies directly to their everyday work life. Guardian CME produces and hosts CAPSI-accredited EMS educational content in the form of videos, podcasts, and videocasts that are free to access and complete. There are tons of courses available on the website right now, and new content is released weekly. Guardian CME content always provides professional production value combined with a robust network of high-quality EMS educators. Accessing and completing any Guardian CME course is an easy process. Go to guardiancme.com and create an account. Yeah, it's free. Click on Continuing Education. Select a course from a growing library. Complete the entire course. Most Guardian CME courses are 30 to 60 minutes. Students are unable to fast forward through any Guardian CME content. They must complete the entire course to advance to the post-course quiz. Once you complete the course, you will have unlimited attempts to complete the 10-question post-course quiz with an 80% or better. Upon successful completion, EMS providers earn credits towards their EMS license in the approved credit category for a particular course. All course completion records are saved under each user's profile indefinitely and students can download or print any course completion certificate that they have earned. Guardian CME doesn't just host CAPSI accredited podcasts. They also produce and host high quality videos. Check out our latest course, Get Your Priorities Straight. This 30-minute course highlights the importance and key criteria of a complete EMS patient assessment and how it relates to accurately prioritizing their condition. Visit guardiancme.com for more information. And now back to the show. Let's get into life flow a little bit here. We'll circle back to more of these patients here, but let's talk a little bit more about life flow and the different types of abilities to administer fluid. And then we'll go back to some of those patients and talk about the why we need to be giving them more thoughtful approach to fluid resuscitation. Number one, the only way I've ever been taught is two methods with administering fluids, gravity and grip, put it up real high on a real long tube and use physics and squeeze it real hard right? And the other one is put the blood pressure cuff around there and squeeze it. Well, that's great, but physics only allows so much, no matter how hard you squeeze or how many times you explain it, that drip, drip, drip is only going to go so fast. But there are commercial devices. You know, we've all seen big pumps. We've all seen that stuff in the hospital. They go beep, 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 and they do all the stuff and you got to plug the thing in and there's a whole thing and you got to call somebody in to fix it all the time. But in EMS, we don't see those a lot. And you surround this like critical care truck. And especially where I work, you know, I'm primary 911. We don't have pumps. We are, you know, a lot of mine has been a grab and squeeze. So give me an overview of what life flow is, why it is, how it's used. And then we'll go back and circle back on some of these patients we use it on. Sure. So think about first, how do we give a fluid bolus? If you look at, at most anyone's EMS protocol for septic shock, your shock protocol, and Jeff, you can validate this if you will, if you agree with me, but most of them will somewhere say, give 500 mils of saline or LR 
for systolic under 90 until you have reversed that, until you've fixed the blood pressure. So 500 mil boluses until systolic is over 90. Would you say that's about accurate, Peter, in your agencies and Jeff in yours? Oh, yeah. That's like a standard. It seems like an AHA line now. Right. So if you look across the EMS literature, the average volume given ever pre-hospital is under that. So presumably among those people for whom fluid was given for septic shock, there's a lot of them that were under 90 and never got fixed. They didn't get to 500. And that's often the amount, about the amount it takes. And the reason is that we're passive. We have a passive approach to shock resuscitation, meaning, okay, hang that fluid and hope that it goes in. Yeah, it's always been, I hang it up there and it drip low. Look how fast it drips. That's what I get. That's always it. Oh, they got a nice big wide open line. That's about it. There you go. And it sounds like that's fast. It sounds like a wide open line out of work, but really a leader is going to get in by that method in 10 to 15 minutes, depending on the gauge of the IV. Smaller, obviously, is going to be slower. An IO is going to be probably much slower. So let's speed it up. Let's squeeze it or kneel on the bag. Well, turns out those don't really improve the speed of flow that much, maybe a few minutes. And so let's put a pressure cuff or a blood pressure cuff up around that bag. How that'll work. Well, yeah, it can modestly improve the flow. Yet what often happens in the hospital, and I imagine what happened in an ambulance as well, is we pump that bag up and then forget about it. And, in, and within a minute or two, that pressure is dissipated and the flow is near back to gravity level again. So unless someone is next to the bag pumping the bulb over and over and over, they're not going to really improve the rate of getting that liter of saline in by much. It'll still take 10 minutes, sometimes more, especially if the patient bends their arm or there's a kink in the tubing, whatever. If it's passive, we're not going to ensure I'm providing adequate resuscitation. And in pediatrics, Peter and I for years have taught push and pull. You put a three-way stopcock, you put a syringe on, you pull fluid from the bag, you turn the stopcock and push it to the patient. It's tedious, time-intensive, is fatiguing for the hand of the person that's using it. And it works sometimes. But as Peter mentioned, when he has taught that technique in the hand-heavy resuscitation class, he kind of gets a lot of blank stares. Like, you mean I'm going to have to do that in the ambulance or in the ER? It's just a hard thing for people to set up. And so there's nothing really effective for treating the lady that I mentioned to you with a systolic of 70. And remember, in someone who's elderly, many of them are going to have pre-existing hypertension. So she's really hypotensive compared to her usual baseline, 130 or 140. How am I going to get 500 mils in quickly? And the life flow was designed to do that, to just take that syringe and stopcock technique and allow someone to spike the fluid, attach the IV, and by hand, put that 500 mils in in maybe two minutes and say, ah, heart rate came down. The skin color is better. The blood pressure is now 80. Great. Let's give another 500. Aha. Now the blood pressure is 100. I've made a difference. And it not only allows an approach of urgency when minutes matter in shock, but it teaches the user, whether that's me or one of my nurses or an EMT or paramedic pre-hospital, to say, ah, cause and effect. A little bit of fluid made a difference. This patient is volume responsive. They responded and gotten better. So that 500 mils, which is in your protocol, can actually be given. And if the systolic is now not 90, I give another one and then I'm done. And then what does it say in your protocol, Jeff, if you've reached two liters? What's your next step? In that situation, we'd probably go to a push-dose epi type situation as there well. There you go. So, And Peter's teaching that as well. Once the patient has had a given amount of fluid, and that could be probably two liters, okay, still a little bit of soft pressure, I'm going to start a vasopressor. Now, if you don't have a mechanism by which you can effectively give that fluid, you will never get to the stage in your algorithm where you're providing the next most valuable care, which is a vasopressor. So 
there is a way now to do it effectively, see cause and effect, and communicate urgency and providers when minutes matter. So would it be safe to provide the analogy that an IV with the gravity or traditional methods of even squeezing it or park the fire truck on top of it doesn't matter? Any method like that is like a nasal cannula compared to life flow being like a CPAP. That volume. Yeah. Yeah. You're you going to Yeah. So it's like, I okay, would say you, it's comparing blow by oxygen to a high flow cannula. Okay, cool. CPAP. Blow by. So you're like waving a nasal in front of somebody's face who is having an extreme asthma attack, but you have the CPAP in your truck and you're just not willing to use it. It's kind of like saying that. But we don't know we're doing that. We're not doing it to be mean. I just think that EMS is just now really appreciating its value. I will tell you that the analogy I like to use, I mean, I, I like your analogies too, but I think that currently it's like playing tennis with a two by four. That's what we're doing now because we're not even using the right equipment. What I learned yesterday, Mark, which is fascinating from David, who was showing our team how to use LifeFlow. There's a segment of the life flow there that accounts for pressure and it makes sure that the pressure that the IV is seeing is the same. Now, if I tell you that if you try to start a 24 gauge in a hand of a kid and then you take an IV and take a syringe and you try and push as hard as you can, there's no question in my mind that that IV is going to blow. But what's fascinating, I, mean, I would love to hear you talk about how you thought through this because I, I didn't really realize this before. But that segment of the life flow allows me, the user, to just squeeze 10 mLs at a time. And I don't have to care about what size IV is on the other side, what size catheter, because the life flow essentially figures it out for me, which is fascinating. The reason gravity is slow and even a pressure bag is slow is, is there's a fixed amount of pressure that can be generated to get the volume through that tiny catheter, right? So either pressure that's generated by gravity by the fluid column above the level of the IV or the elevator pressure you put through the pressure bag. If you use a syringe, like Peter and I have taught since we were residents, you administer somewhat more pressure than a pressure bag does. But the IV tolerates that just fine. And the, the IV catheter itself is essentially the protector of the vein. You don't apply that pressure to the vein. You apply a slightly increased pressure to the IV cannula. And if you think about where do we apply high pressure to IVs, Peter, all the time, it's in CT, where we send a patient over to the CAT scanner and the contrast injector pushes the contrast in so that we can look for the appendicitis or whatever we're looking for on the CAT scan. That thing administers a whopping amount of pressure, 300 PSI just a higher pressure than we can even imagine. So we're not talking anywhere close to that when we push fluid with a syringe. What the life flow does is it adds a segment of tubing in, which is dispensable so that when you squeeze the handle, if the IV is not ready to accommodate the volume that you're trying to give, it just expands the tubing. And then as you release the handle, as if you're trying to refill a syringe, that tubing just collapses down again and continues to infuse just like your aorta would. Every time your heart beats, your aorta expands to capture some of the volume that's not going out to the periphery. And then as you're in diastole, as the heart's refilling, the aorta, the elastic recoil is then compressing the rest of the blood into the periphery of your body. So it's an elastic system that allows you to provide a smoother flow, even if you have a smaller IV. By any method, life flow, any other, the smaller the IV, the slower the flow but it allows you to overcome the incredibly slow flow that you get through most IVs that we're using 20, 22, even an 18 is quite slow when you just use gravity infusion. So there is a mechanism in there that accommodates and reduces the pressure. 
What type of rates do you get? So if I've got a patient who is in my nursing home to septic or even a pediatric patient who requires this, they don't always have big old pipes like my 40-year-old bodybuilders, right? So I might only get a 20, a 22 on these people. Maybe I'm forced That's to right. get a 24. So in those situations, obviously an IV and the traditional methods not going to a lot of volume. What kind of volume are you pushing through life flow in those situations? Speed does not necessarily equate to lots of volume. We're not saying we always need lots and lots and lots of volume, right? We're talking about the right amount in the right amount of time to fix blood pressure and shock. And so you can put, I believe, 500 mils in about two minutes through a 22. Which is incredibly fast. Yeah. So not that you always need to do that. But if that's all you have, then you're able to do it. And we, I think in some of our blood data, we have about a unit of whole blood in two minutes or a minute and a half. That's about 500 mils. Okay. So these patients that are receiving this type of device for fluid therapy, the traditional methods are just too slow. There might be a too fast. We don't know what that is yet based on evidence, but we do know the evidence is that traditional IV methods of fluid resuscitation are just too slow currently. This also allows us the ability to administer a treatment in a time frame that I can actually take another blood pressure. Because like you're saying, if I'm going to administer my 500 milliliters, I might not even be at the hospital yet. That's right. Okay. So let's talk um, about some more of these patients that we would apply this to. We talked about the septic nursing home patient. We talked a bit about the pediatric patient. Let's get into this anaphylactic patient. The place for fluid replacement in these patients is a little less obvious to the average provider. Can you talk about fluid resuscitation for them and the use of life flow in them? Remember that refractory anaphylaxis is where we really be thinking about fluid. That is someone who through repeated doses of EpiPen is still having signs of anaphylactic shock, low blood pressure, tachycardia, poor skin perfusion. And those patients may need a rapid dose of fluid to overcome their hypotension if you've already exhausted a few EpiPens and you're getting your EpiDrip ready. Going back to the pool analogy, it's as if suddenly someone took your regular sized pool and made it into an Olympic sized pool. That amount of water that's in that pool is now half as much. And now everything doesn't work. The pipes aren't filling with water because it's not getting to the drain the right way. The pump is not working correctly because there's air in the pipes. So effectively, with anaphylaxis, like Mark said, refractory, hasn't responded to the, let's say, first dose of EpiPen, the second dose of EpiPen or IM Epi, all of a sudden you start to see that this patient is in severe anaphylaxis, anaphylactic shock. They need to fill the tank up really quickly. So this person is not bleeding out. It won't seem obvious where all this fluid has gone, but you better believe that they need fluids on top of push presser Epi and Epi drip, et cetera. So I would impress upon everybody that you should treat anaphylaxis just like you treat cardiac arrest, which is there's a very small set of things you need to do. You can kind of check them off on five little boxes, but you got to do them and you cannot wait for anybody else to do them because the patient's going to have a bad outcome or they're going to die. And one of those main things is fluid administration rapidly for those patients. Right. Encountering someone with severe anaphylaxis, Peter, you can't count on the epi fully fixing it. So preparation and and having an understanding of how am I going to provide that fluid resuscitation is really important as you're preparing to treat that patient because the epi may not fully reverse the root cause. Right. And that's why, Mark, what we practice is that as soon as someone says severe anaphylaxis, they get the kitchen sink. They get the entire algorithm. So we don't say something like, okay, give me epi, wait a few minutes. Okay, let's get solumedrol. Okay, let's get albuterol. Oh, you know, what about this normal saline? No, no. They get it all 
all at the same time. I mean, as, as best as we can, obviously. But I think that's the mistake people make is that they kind of give a little, they wait, they give a little, they wait. And I'm with you on this one. I think we just give it because no one's going to suffer a bad outcome because you did all the right things at the same time. That's right. Very good. Okay. Yeah. That does sum it up nicely for the anaphylactic patient. We are changing the compartment size space and what's filling it up. So it makes sense to really, Hey, you dumped a bunch of stuff in them. Let's give them a little fluid too and kind of buffer that response, even their own physiological response on top of the pharmacology that we just dumped inside of them. But yeah, let's go back to this TBI patient because this is the most interesting because I came up during an era where it was, you really want to keep your pressure right around a hundred. You don't want to overly fluid these patients. Don't you ever do that? The trauma surgeons will be mad at us. And like everything else, time changes all science (laughs) or at least the way we practice it, right? So give me an overview of the use of fluid resuscitation for traumatic patients, multi-system trauma with TBI specifically, and then how we use life flow to achieve that. Let's just be clear. There are a lot of involving concepts right now. And it is very true that ideally, if someone's bleeding, we'd like to give them blood back. Peter and I will be in 100% agreement on that. But how many of us have blood immediately available to treat the patient with hemorrhagic shock in the field? Most of us do not have immediate access to blood. Peter's agency in Florida is groundbreaking in that they've implemented the hospital blood transfusion just yesterday, as several others have around the country. And I think only one other in Florida now, Peter? Yeah, there's actually three now total. Okay, very good. So let's just be clear. Blood is best for bleeding patients and probably whole blood is best. But what if you don't have that? And what if your patient is dying of shock? What do you do? And the science around why not to give crystalloids is important to understand as well. Crystalloids given to trauma patients dilutes your blood, dilutes the clotting factors, does not itself provide any ability to clot. Itself is an acidic solution. So normal saline is acidic and worsens acidosis when given in large volumes. And lastly, if we're giving even room temperature fluids to a trauma patient, we may risk cooling them down. The harms of fluid given to trauma patients have mostly occurred when we give lots and lots, like many, many liters. I don't know that we have the space, Jeff, on this podcast to go into the data. It would be worth an entire podcast at some point where we can go over the data on this carefully. Don't overdo it is the lesson. Absolutely. We don't like giving fluid to trauma patients in the trauma bay anymore. We give them some, sometimes, especially if it's a kid, but I mean 20 per kilo, and then we get the blood going. And many times we're starting blood immediately. But if the patient is peri-arrest or even a traumatic arrest, or especially if they have a traumatic brain injury, that hypotension is poorly tolerated. And so getting some type of intravascular volume into them to stabilize them until they get to definitive care or until they get to blood transfusion is super important. And this is another situation where minutes matter. And so I'll go back to briefly the evidence from the EPIC TBI study, which is something Peter and I talk a lot about. And that was designed to think about how we can improve outcomes for traumatically injured patients with TBI. And it was directed at the avoidance of several things, but mostly hypoxia and hypotension the two things that are really going to kill our traumatic brain injury patients. And even though they knew too that blood would be better for hemorrhaging patients, they didn't have blood available in most of those agencies when they did the study. And so they gave fluid and patients received around 500 to one liter of fluid for hypotension. And those who did, those who were treated with fluid to reverse their hypotension had a significant reduction in mortality. It's dramatic news. I think Peter and I both feel like it's not widely enough known that this study is out there and 
was well done and had thousands of patients, and it's just really important data to know. So the question is, if we are faced with a hemorrhaging patient who has a brain injury, should we treat them with some fluid fairly quickly to reverse their hypotension while we're performing other interventions like hemorrhage control, basic airway maneuvers, all that? Yes, the answer is yes. And then the question is, how do you do it and with what urgency do you do it? Like Mark said, there were the three H's, which is hypotension, hypoxia, and hyperventilation. All they really looked at was after this intervention of telling people just avoid those three things, they ended up looking at a before and after. So before the education, they looked at what were the outcomes for people who had hyperventilation, hypotension, and hypoxia. And then they looked at it afterwards. And as Mark alluded to, there was that subset of patients, which is the severe head injuries, meaning that the mild ones, they all did okay. The critical ones that had brain exposed, they're not going to do well anyway. It's those folks right in the middle that if they had any episodes of hypoxia, they had a five times worse outcome, hypotension, three times worse outcome. If they had any episodes of one and the other, one hypoxia, one hypotension, a 17-fold worse outcome. And I think that my piece that Mark and I are trying to remind people, and the part that wasn't really explained so well in the paper itself is that when you look at what is the best blood pressure to have for a traumatic brain injured patient who has multi-system trauma, it's not permissive hypotension. It turns out that the patients who had a blood pressure of about 125 to 170 systolic had the lowest risk of dying, not 90 and this permissive hypotension. So it turns out that when your brain is injured, you have to sacrifice this permissive hypotension for the sake of the brain. And if you're out there listening to this today and you're thinking of, oh, this is a trauma patient, I'm not going to give them fluids, and you walk into the ER and the pressure is 75, 80, 85, that patient has a big time chance of having a bad outcome. And so this information is so, so important, but I don't think it's kind of penetrated into the wider audience yet. I think it's going to take a bit of time to take this information that is even new to me. And I'm pretty progressive and up to date on a lot of information. And a lot of this is still new to me. So I can only imagine your average busy EMS provider with a busy workday and a busy life. This is maybe passing them by. That's going to happen to a lot of people. So I'm, I'm certainly going to be putting this in the forefront of my training coming up here soon. And it's important, Jeff, to remember that messages get confused. It is true that we can give too much fluid to patients with trauma and sepsis and brain injury. It would be rare that someone in the pre-hospital environment could even do that, that they could give too much. So we need to separate the long-term harms that are really the responsibility of folks in the ED, but more even the responsibility of folks in my ICU on the overdoing of fluid and really focus on what are the critical interventions we can do to improve neurologic outcomes, improve mortality in people with severe shock, and particularly those with traumatic brain injury. And I think that this is an important message for us to tell. And also just remind everyone that there's confusion out there, that fluid has in some ways gotten a bad name because of the excesses that we have committed in the past, where we have performed imprecise and overdone fluid resuscitation throughout a patient's ICU course. And that sometimes obscures the message that, no, 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 there's actually data that an adequate amount given rapidly in the field targeted at reversal of a severe condition called shock can really make a meaningful difference. And so we need to balance those two out. Pre-hospital providers can make a massive difference in the outcomes of these patients. And the EPIC TBI study is just great evidence of that. Absolutely. I think people forget sometimes that saline or whatever fluid you're pushing is a medication and it's dose related. You can always give too much or too little of anything. 
that you can give just the right amount of fluid for some pretty sick people and make a big impact. Right. And it doesn't mean that we're passive about it either, that we just hang the bag up and hope the effect is real. It won't be in most cases. We need to have an active mechanism, whether that's a pressure bag or a syringe in the stopcock or a life flow or whatever you're using. You need to be thinking, I need to fix that patient's blood pressure and I'm going to try to do it quickly and choose a method and use it and be deliberate about it. Go into any ambulance today and try to find the things that are really, truly life-saving. Go into the drug box. Find me the drugs that are really, truly life-saving. It turns out there aren't many. You can throw away amiodarone, lidocaine. People even say epinephrine. It turns out that whole blood will fix people and get them back to life. IV fluids will save people's lives. Of all the things that we do in EMS and all the tools that we have, We've had something sitting there the entire time that we just haven't given the value to, not for TBI, not for anaphylaxis, not for shock. We haven't given it the attention it has deserved, even though there's so much data out there. And we didn't really get into this, guys, today, which I I wish we would have. But the reason that fluids has been pushed down the list is because of the data that the guidelines are using to push that fluid message down erroneously. So I think that I'm so glad we're doing this podcast today because I think that we have to turn the message around in order to start to save more lives rather than to not use something that could be life-saving when we're treating patients in the field. I think we've captured a wonderful message here today. Hopefully what we've done is getting our EMS providers to turn on that curiosity switch and say, should I have been giving more fluid more often for certain patients? And just that thought should spark more questions within their organization. I think that's all we can do is that nice, gentle nudge in a right trajectory. Well, thank you gentlemen very much for coming on the show today. I hope to have you both back here very soon. And maybe you guys can send us a few life flows and we'll play like a squirt gun war or something. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Thanks guys. Have a us. good day. Yeah. Appreciate it. That is all for the show today, everyone. Thank you to Dr. Peel and Dr. Antevi for joining me to discuss the value of fluid resuscitation. Again, I learned a lot that I'll be taking back to my system, and I hope our listeners got something out of this as well. Visit 410medical.com for more information about life flow and check out the episode description for links to studies and information cited in this episode. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, and episode ideas to the EMS On Air podcast team by email to Jeff, that's G-E-O-F-F, at emsonair.com. Check out our website, emsonair.com, for the latest information, podcast episodes, and other details. Follow us on Instagram at emsonair.com, and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And finally, please, whatever podcast platform you use, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. Thank you for listening to the EMS On Air podcast. Stay safe and have a great day.